Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. My name's Mike Allen and back with a fresh fascinating story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, four different guests to help tell the story of one of the oldest train lines in Connecticut that's still functioning, doing a bit of freight traffic, although passenger service ended 50 years ago. It's the Housatonic Railroad, so named because of its close proximity to the Housatonic River, snaking through beautiful western Connecticut and up to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. With us to tell the story are Susan Del Bianco, an expert on the rail line who's a local historian and part of the Trumbull Historical Society, Peter McLaughlin, a retired veteran railroad engineer, Jeremy Ruman, head of the committee that's restoring the historic Merwinsville Hotel in the Gaylordsville section of New Milford, used to be a station stop along the line, and Bob Brown, president of the Brookfield Historical Society and Museum, where three different stations used to exist. In the 1800s, Connecticut built train lines everywhere. They displaced the stagecoach routes and barge canals that had provided transportation service until then. Steam locomotives had a big advantage. Steel wheels running over smooth steel rails. Well, this greatly reduced friction, and it allowed them to pull multiple cars with hundreds of tons of people and goods. The friction of wagon wheels against dirt roads made it virtually impossible for horses to pull too much weight, not to mention a lot of the deep ruts and rocks that got in their way. And barges, well, they had less friction due to the buoyant water in a canal, but they only moved four miles an hour. So trains took over transportation. Most of the old rail lines in Connecticut are now long gone. Some rusting rails are still visible amongst overgrown weeds. Other rails have been ripped up and their metal salvaged. And still others have been converted into hiking or biking rail trails. Connecticut still has passenger service, Amtrak, Metro North, and the Hartford Line along two major trunks. One is the East-West Line running right along the Connecticut shoreline. It has three commuter spurs that reach inland to New Canaan, Danbury, and Waterbury. The other major trunk line runs north-south and essentially cuts the state into two halves. It runs between New Haven and Hartford and up to Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, Connecticut still has freight service as well. They share the same lines as the passenger trains, but there are a handful of other freight rail lines that are still in existence and go where no passenger trains go anymore. One of those is the Housatonic Railroad. Now, the Housatonic started service back in 1842, and although it's undergone numerous management and ownership changes since then, it still runs freight trains in Connecticut's Western Territory. Now, way back then, businessmen from Bridgeport on Long Island Sound had planned to build a canal. It was going to go inland, and it was going to run from essentially Westport to New Milford. Well, then came along the new technology, the Iron Horse, as they called it, and plans immediately changed. The new rail line would run from Bridgeport to Massachusetts, passing through a number of Connecticut towns. Susan Del Bianco has studied the Housatonic for years, and she says an initial driving economic force was an important liquid. The milk was big because there were a lot of farms up here, up in Trumbull, rather, and Bridgeport. 
And there was so, I mean, buttermilk, milk, that was real big. As a matter of fact, they used to call the New Haven line the big milk. Connecticut was all about farming in those days. It wasn't, you know, like woods the way we see it now. It was all, you know, um, cultivated farmland, and they had stone walls, which made natural borders, um, and farmers owned, you know, each and every lot, and they had their cows in there. There were dozens of farms in the 1800s, and the farmers needed to move their milk to processing plants. The Iron Horse revolutionized how they could do it. It was hard to get goods to the marketplace, obviously, by horse and buggy. You know, it was a much slower, you know, um, mode of transportation. And having this train, you know, cut, cut the time in half, really. And, um, and, and it's sort of like enhanced industry. Not all farmers were thrilled by the new technology. Farmers were very opposed to the steam locomotive. Um, they hated it. It made noise. It scared their livestock. Then they realized later on that they could make money off of it. Railroads outfitted their locomotives with the infamous cow catchers on the front to nudge cows off the track if they were resting on the tracks. Another trick they used extended the ice used to keep the milk chilled. They would chop the ice and then they would put the big blocks on the train and put sawdust in between the, the blocks to prevent it from uh, melting, actually. While trains revolutionized commerce, they also helped people. People can now get to places more quickly than they ever could have by stagecoach. The well-to-do bought summer houses in the country and took the train for a weekend getaway. And those living in the country could take a train to cities in a fraction of the time they could before. Now, getting tracks laid was a tedious and dangerous job. For example, through the narrow rock-edged cliffs in Trumbull. It took 300 men to lay down those tracks in the Trumbull Valley. And they went in there and lived in there basically with tents or, you know, lean-tos or whatever and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, drank in there meanwhile. But they had to blow up a lot of rock in there. And what they would do is they would put it in a crack, you know, the powder, and then put this long fuse in there and then light it and run. Looking at the history of old train lines is for many a fun, if not frustrating, hobby. For example, finding out where the former train stations used to be is an avid pastime among railroad enthusiasts. They search online for vintage photos and meticulously track down the locations where these station stops used to exist. In Bridgeport, there were three train stations over the years. The first two are no longer standing. Susan says there isn't even a photo of the first one, but the second one was a grand structure. It actually burnt down to the ground. And they had a big fire there. And all that was left, basically, to that edifice was the gargoyles on top of the uh, tower. Susan says she remembers that grand old structure from her youth. I used to go in there when I was a kid, and it was beautiful in there, just brass, and it smelled like shoe polish, I remember, because they had a shine man on the second floor. But it was a beautiful edifice, and it just burned down to the ground in 1978. Among Susan's most satisfying finds as a historian was to uncover the existence of the long-gone North Bridgeport train station, which others had completely forgotten about. It serviced one of the city's most popular parks. No one knows that there was actually a North Bridgeport station, which was a mile and a half from the original station on Water Street. And it was a little shanty, and people would get off there and then go to Beersley Park. One of the more unusual stops along the Housatonic was the Long Hill Station in Trumbull, 
where the Housatonic Railroad actually built the Parlor Rock Amusement Park. It was built up by the Housatonic Railroad uh, Company in about 1878 to 1898 to promote train travel. And 3,000 people would be in there on a weekend having clam bakes. They would bring oysters up on the train. They would have toboggan slides up there, uh, carousel horses, uh, boating, acrobatics, everything. Today, you might see one or two Housatonic freight trains on the line, if you're lucky. But back in 1900, at the height of railroad service in western Connecticut, 100 trains used to pass through the Hollyville station in Newtown every day. Hollyville at one time was a big, big train hub, and it housed five running lines. And all the lines converged into Hollyville. Near that station was one of only two train tunnels ever built in Connecticut. This is another piece of obscure railroad history in which a lot of people don't know about those tunnels. They are massive. While you can hike to the remains of the tunnel today, you're advised not to walk through it, even with waterproof boots. The next town up the line had three stations over the years. Bob Brown, president of the Brookfield History Society and Museum, Says most residents, though, don't know much about them because the train last picked up passengers half a century ago. One of the stations, called Brookfield Junction, was, in its day, a massive operation. It had multiple tracks and even a rare turntable, which was used to turn locomotives around so they could go in a different direction. There was a junction for at least two railroads, maybe three at one time, that they needed to turn around uh, the locomotives. If you know where to look, you can still see the remnants of the curved turntable in the woods near the site, but it has trees now growing up through it. Bob says 40 trains a day used to pass through Brookfield Junction, and he says there was an interesting hotel that stood just across the street. The old uh, hotel, which was uh, burned down, I don't know if you remember uh, the, the burning of that building, that hotel serviced that old station, it was, it, was, uh, it was built as a, uh, a house of ill repute, and uh, it was a bar also in the, in, the, in the lower part of it. It wasn't unusual to have such an establishment near a train line. For starters, Susan Del Bianco says railroading had a certain culture in those days. They used to run railroad guys up 14, 15, 20 hours without any sleep, and they drank a lot too. There was a lot of whiskey. Bob Brown says safety became a big deal around 1912. The Housatonics set out to remove as many grade crossings as they could. A grade crossing is where the vehicles have to cross the tracks. Well, there were no blinking red lights in those days and no dropping arms to block traffic from crossing. People were, were killed once in a while. Uh, trains would run. There were a lot of trains. I think there were more than 40 trains every day going on those on those. <laughs> It's hard to believe, but but that many trains uh, with that many crossings, uh, grade crossings, that's the trouble. That you're, you're, they're going to they're run into trouble with, with the passage of animals and people and cars and so forth. And Bob says this resulted not only in a realignment of the train line through Brookfield, but also the building of many new bridges to avoid grade crossings altogether. Further north, New Milford had three stations at one time. One of them, the Merwinsville Hotel, doubled as a train stop and a railroad meal stop for many decades. It was built by a businessman named Sylvanus Merwin in the 1800s. 
Well, it fell into disuse and disrepair by the 1900s. And the woman who heads the committee that's restoring the building to its former luster is Jeremy Rubin. Back in the 1800s, Jeremy says that Sylvanus Merwin had a separate hotel in a different part of town. And one night he had some interesting guests, the surveyors for the Housatonic Railroad. They were in town to pick the best path to run their trains. Merwin overheard their conversation. The surveyors were staying there, and he overheard them that the rail line was going to come through. And so after they left, he bought the land. And then when the railroad did come through and wanted to get a right-of-way through the property, he said, the only way I'll grant that is that you stop at my hotel for meals. Well, Merwin got a contract with the railroad. Every passenger train had to stop at his facility for a meal. It was literally a gravy train and a steady flow of cash. At first, residents who didn't know what Merwin knew couldn't understand why he was building such a lavish hotel literally in the middle of nowhere. Didn't seem to make any sense. It had three stories, dining rooms on the first floor, hotel rooms on the second floor, and an open dance hall on the top floor. Jeremy says the meal stop had to be very efficient. It was a very short amount of time that they had to feed all these people. It's amazing what they did in the 20 minutes or half an hour to get everybody fed and then back on the train. Jeremy says the records they have show that the hotel was host to black tie affairs over the years and even the famous Gibson girls of the day were featured there on occasion. Well, technology disruption's been the undoing of many a successful business model over the years, and Sylvanus Merwin was no exception. The Pullman Train Car Company, with its reputation for building the most cutting-edge train cars, introduced the dining car in the late 1880s, and there was no longer a need for the train to stop at Merwin's restaurants. Well, this led to a bit of a strained relationship and a couple of disagreements between Merwin and the railroad. The Housatonic ended up building its own station, just 50 yards down the track from Merwin's facility. And with that move, his enterprise slowly came to an end. Well, the hotel went through several ownership changes, but the owners did little in the way of upkeep, and slowly it fell into utter disrepair and neglect. Enter Jeremy Ruman's father, George, in the 1960s. Jeremy says their family lived in Newtown, and her dad commuted 25 miles to the job in Kent. She said that he had a pension for driving home on different back roads in the evening, due to his sense of adventure and exploration. He went by this hotel at some point, and it was all in very bad shape, and then he couldn't find it again. He thought it was an amazing building. Where, why was it out here in the middle of nowhere? And he thought it was just incredible. Jeremy says that because the hotel was in such an out-of-the-way location, her dad couldn't find it again. Well, a few years later, he set out to find a new home closer to his job to shorten his commute. As luck would have it, he ended up buying the new family house just about a quarter of a mile from the dilapidated hotel. Well, he was hooked, and he wanted to fix up that hotel. He had a lot of vision and um, was extremely enthusiastic. And I think that that was really key because you can have the vision, but if, I, if you can't get anybody behind you, you're not going to get anywhere unless you're a millionaire. It was 50 years ago in 1971 that George's turnaround effort began. It resulted in a structure that's been accepted onto the National Register of Historic Places and now plays host 
too many events. We'll have people come to visit and they'll, oh, this is great and this is nice. And I always try to make sure that they see some of the early pictures because if you don't know, you have no idea how bad it was because it was really bad. Peter McLaughlin will vouch for Jeremy. Peter's a retired train engineer. In fact, he drove the very last passenger train that ever went along the Housatonic Railroad line. Well, just like the start of the restoration effort, that train ride that he engineered occurred in 1971. Peter says that he used to pass by the hotel on his way from Danbury to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We used to go by that Marinville Hotel, wonder when it would, A, fall down or burn down. Now Peter's opinion is done and about face. I was up there a while back. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. They were working on the hall upstairs. I've done talks and shows up there. Peter has a lot of memories from his days on the Housatonic Railroad. He remembers how people used to stop and watch the train pass by and even wave to him. He also remembers the two salesmen who worked for the Housatonic Railroad Company. It was their job to look for new business along the line. And they did it. Schools, everything we had. Resorts. Up they would come, carloads of people. And the resorts always met the train with their bus. You didn't need driving. Tanglewood, 142 on Saturday, 130 for Tanglewood. Among the business they drummed up was to work with the many summer camps that used to flourish in the northwest hills of Connecticut. The Housatonic would provide special trains with dedicated passenger cars for the campers. We used to call them MLM, Mother's Little Monster Trains. Despite the noise from the campers, the business was very successful. Peter has numerous stories from his years on the railroad, like the time a tree fell across the tracks in a ferocious rainstorm. He and his conductor had to pull the axe from the emergency compartment and go out and start chopping at it so they could clear the tracks. Well, they were getting soaked. A passenger stepped out and said, hey, can I help you? Well, Peter says his conductor, who was not happy about being in the pouring rain, swore at the passenger, saying, Who are you, bleeping Paul Bunyan? Well, the problem was the passenger was a Catholic priest, and the conductor, a devout Catholic, spent the rest of the ride apologizing to the Monsignor. Another memory was from the Danbury to Norwalk branch line in Norwalk. It wasn't as humorous as the last one, but still had a favorable ending. I hit a limousine. He came right over the crossing. There wasn't a thing left of this car. He come out just scratched. He did not have his seat belt on. If he had his seat belt on, I'd have killed him. Accidents haven't always turned out so fortunately, though. Susan Del Bianco says there were a lot of train wrecks, particularly early on in the days of railroading. We think we have a lot of wrecks on Amtrak and everything, but these were commonplace, everyday occurrences. And a lot of people got killed. Taking a train in the early days wasn't the safest way to travel. However, people needed to get where they were going more quickly. So they took the chance. It was very risky to take a train, you know, because they derailed so much and, and all that stuff. And you know how people are afraid to take them today? But back then, can you imagine? I mean, like, they, they were everyday occurrences. One of several major accidents was a 1910 head-on collision in the Trumbull Valley. There was an up freight from Bridgeport coming at 542, and there was a down freight ridden by engineer George Holt. He was supposed to stop off at the Pollard Rock siding that day, and he didn't. 
And I think that what had happened was he fell asleep. When the engineer who missed the stop at the siding realized what had happened and that he was heading straight for the northbound freight train, he took steps to save himself. And he just panicked and jumped right out into the Trumbull Valley. He ended up losing his hand. And six guys died. Um, Somebody named Burns, Alan Burns, he got caught underneath the wheels. A boiler blew up and burnt somebody to death. Susan says somebody had to take responsibility for the fatalities. And of course, everyone else got blamed. The, the brakeman got blamed because he wasn't paying attention. But ultimately, in those days, the engineer always got blamed. The engineer ended up serving time for manslaughter. Well, you remember those special trains that brought children to summer camp? Peter McLaughlin says one of them was involved in a horrible crash. It was August of 1941. The crash occurred in Kent at beautiful Hatch Pond. Peter says the train rounded a curve by the pond too quickly. It derailed and the engine and the first three cars landed in the water. Well, thankfully, minutes before the accident occurred, the children were all moved back to the end of the train for their lunch. Unfortunately, the crew was not so fortunate. The engineer and conductor were killed instantly, and the third crewman was saved only through Herculean efforts. The fireman, Robert Klug, his foot's caught between the tender and the engine. He's almost underwater. They had to go in, hold his head up, they had to cut his foot off. Peter says that while the fireman survived, he never spoke about the accident again. He passed away a few years ago. The end of passenger service on the Housatonic Railroad came in 1971. Peter, as we said earlier, was the engineer on that last train. A film crew documented the final passenger run. Tom Berry's film crew spent three months with the train crew getting ready for it. You can see a trailer of Tom's film on YouTube, and the full version of it's on sale at the Danbury Railway Museum. Well, Peter says Tom had captured hours and hours of material and fortunately made what Peter referred to as a scratch film, roughly 35 minutes of what was later to become the full-length feature presentation. All the filming he had, he lost everything in a house fire. If he had not made this scratch film, he'd have had nothing. So what's the future hold for the Housatonic? Well, it's still doing some limited freight service, but what about passengers? There's been talk about restoring passenger service from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, south to New Milford, and possibly even someday expanding all the way down to New York City through Danbury. At its end, Massachusetts is fixing up the line, but so far, Connecticut hasn't done so. Peter says somebody's going to have to pay to fix up the tracks. He says speed on the Connecticut portion is down to 12 miles an hour due to the poor condition of the rails. Peter's been brought into some of the discussions about restoring passenger service, and he says there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. What he recommends is a high-quality ridership analysis to see if there's sufficient demand. You go to the schools, you go to the resorts who all use the railroad, you go to these people, what if we come back? Would you come back? Not saying they're going to come back, because some of them may never. We're gone 50 years. Well, maybe passenger service will come back someday. Until then, we do still have our memories. In Brookfield, Bob Brown says that while the Brookfield Junction train station itself may be long gone, 
That hasn't stopped enthusiasts from visiting the site and searching for treasure. A lot of people search for uh, metallic pieces with metal detectors. And also, I think the, uh, the platform is still there that had the station on it. Susan Del Bianco tells a similar story about the woods around the former Botsford station in Newtown. If you go in there, and I wouldn't beckon anyone to really go in there because you have to go through a wooded area, but you do see uh, along the old Housatonic Railroad route, or New York, New Haven, rather, old tracks from 1927. And as you get to the Botsford Station, uh, well, where it once, once was, you'll see the, there was a junction there. And the right split off and went all the way to New Haven. And then the left split off and went to Pittsfield eventually. And she does her part to keep the history alive, leading a popular bike riding tour along the new rail trail. Well, every May and every October, I bring everyone up there to show them all the historical points of interest. And people just think, this is woods. It wasn't just the woods in there. It was industry coming alive. And it was all, you know, the beginning of the industrial, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. If you ask Peter McLaughlin to wax poetic and identify his favorite spot along the line, well, it's a tough chore for him. You've got Hatch Pond below Kent. You've got nice fields that in the summer are loaded with thousands of lightning bugs. And you have the woods. Uh, the field above Lee, going along the Housatonic River. You know, you see people kayaking. I can't say one real thing. I just love the whole line. And for Jeremy Ruman, well, she sometimes just stands in the Merwinsville Hotel that her team of volunteers is renovating, while one of the four remaining freight trains each day passes by. She says she always looks forward to it. There's something really special about hearing the whistle. It just never gets old. Well, that's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank all of my guests for this episode. Susan Del Bianco, a local historian who's an expert on the rail line, part of the Trumbull Historic Society. Peter McLaughlin, a veteran railroader who was an engineer and drove the last passenger train from Danbury to Pittsfield on the Housatonic Line. Jeremy Ruman, head of the committee that's restoring the historic Merwinsville Hotel in the Gaylordsville section of New Milford. And Bob Brown, president of the Brookfield Historical Museum. Please follow me in between episodes on either Facebook at Amazing Tales CT or Instagram also at Amazing Tales CT. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you heard today, spread the word with your family and friends. We'll see you here next time on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. 